Now, security theater pops up usually when people are frightened and the politicians feel like they need to do something and they don't really know what to do. Sanitizing surfaces, disinfectant, hand sanitizer proliferation, are these things even useful? The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'm going to rant a little bit. And I apologize in advance, but it's been a long time coming. And now that I've got a platform, I can be the old man yelling at clouds. I want to talk a little bit about things that piss me off. I want to talk a little bit about the public policy problems surrounding security theater. And this happens in a lot of aspects of our life. And I hope you enjoy listening to it. If you do, please press like on your podcast app. Uh, Send me a message, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you. And also, um, we're getting pretty excited here on The Rational View, waiting for our our big interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson coming up uh, very soon. Uh, So that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I hope you tune in and stay tuned. Uh, That'll be coming out uh, very soon. So my rant. I'm angry about a lot of things. That's why I started this podcast. Now, I don't get overtly angry. I try to discuss these problems and I try to find solutions. I may not be offering solutions in this podcast, but I want to highlight the problems that I've seen. One issue that uh, I think we all experience is working with big companies that have monopolies like airlines, banks, phone companies. And these things are painful. These companies actively dissuade complaints through hierarchical customer service and and offshore phone service, uh, if you can call it that. You've got airlines bumping reservations, losing luggage, canceling flights, and not making good on their promises to their to their people. I really hate the fact that you can't talk to people. In a lot of these cases, the effect is just big companies collectively lowering standards and bullying their customers. Your call-in centers for support. The first-line representatives don't offer monetary compensation. You have to spend hours complaining about the problems that they're causing. And they just hope that through attrition and pain that people will give up and pay them the money uh, for low service. Another service-related issue that I'd like to talk about, and I know you've probably experienced this too, and this comes from when I was young, you know, I used to go to the bank with my parents sometimes and they would walk in and change an account. They would fill out a form, hand it to the teller. They would walk away. The the work would be done. These days, banks seem to play space invaders with your time. You go in there, you have to make an appointment to, to do a mortgage or get a loan. And you're in there and they talk to you and they ask you your name and they start tickety ticketing away in their computer. And I don't know how many forms that they have to fill out, but you're just sitting there while they're tickety-ticking away. They could be playing Space Invaders. They could be playing Defender. I don't know what the hell they're doing. But this is your time. This is your system. Why are you taking my time to do this? I shouldn't need a half-hour slot with a service representative to open an account and wait while their computer reboots for the nth time or have them say, oh, I'm sorry, the network's down. You're going to have to wait. It's like, no, that's your problem. Stop giving it to me. 
give me some service here. Let, let's, let's go back to customer service. I'm going to fill up my name and my address, give you this form. You can play with Space Invaders on your computer and fill it in. This is not my time. Uh, so sorry about the rant. Another one that, that really gets me sometimes, if you go to a retail organization, say you're buying clothes, why do you need to give them your phone number and email to purchase something? This is a service they're providing you. You are not, you're not required to help them with their advertising and their spam uh, campaigns. When they ask for your phone number and your email, you know, 555-5555 or, or just no thank you. It, it annoys me to no end. But now I want to get into the main topic of this podcast, security theater. And you're probably aware of this. It probably encountered a lot in your life. Um, if you have passwords on the internet, which everybody does, there are several sites and each site you have to log in, provide information, maybe even give them your credit card number and give them a, a unique password. And it's got to be some sort of bloody complex thing that nobody can remember with special characters, numbers and uh, handstands. If you can't remember it, aren't you more likely to write it down somewhere near your computer? Is this really the best solution for security? You should have a password that's easy to remember for you and hard for a computer to break. This is especially true in that the, the passwords are not where people are hacking most systems. In most systems, they're not guessing your password. I'm sure there are a few that are very simple and easy to guess. The one, two, three, four, five ones, the ABC ones, or one, 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 one ones. These are easy to guess, sure. But a lot of people are very happy to post their online password hints to phishing schemes. Like, uh, what was your first car? Where were you married? You remember, what was your favorite song? What was your first teacher? All these things you see on, on Facebook, for example, and thousands of people are basically just publishing their password hints with, with absolutely no thought to why is this person asking about these things that show up on password hints? So here's my public service warning. Don't fill out those, those surveys. So security theater, part of this security theater is also the big terms and conditions uh, novels that you have to accept by clicking a box every time you install new software or, or do any sort of transaction. You have a 10-page terms and conditions form that you have to agree to. <laughs> so this is security theater. Security theater are things that you do that don't help with security but make people feel good or allow people to check a box. And they're a big waste of time in modern society. Now, a, a really topical one right now that I want to talk about is COVID-19, the pandemic, and the security theater surrounding COVID. Now, security theater pops up usually when people are frightened and the politicians feel like they need to do something and they don't really know what to do. You can't stand up to security theater because it's being done for your safety. Or think about the children. We're implementing this process to protect the children. We allow these incursions against sensibility and reason because it's too much energy to stand up and fight. Especially when you could be ostracized or publicly flogged for not getting on board. You don't care about children. People are dying because you're not sanitizing your hands every time you walk into a store. 
Sanitizing surfaces? Disinfectant? Hand sanitizer proliferation? Are these things even useful? Sure, hand sanitizer can kill germs if it has the right alcohol concentration and it's on your hands for long enough. But right now, scientifically speaking, there's no evidence of COVID-19 being spread through surface contact. Most scientists studying it right now agree that it goes through the air. This is why we wear masks. Now, hand sanitizing on its own isn't bad. It also prevents transmission of other nasty bugs and bacteria and that sort of thing. The risk is that people, after years of this pandemic, are getting prevention fatigue. And by focusing on things that may be ineffective, these little pantomimes of security theater may decrease um, or increase resistance against things that actually prevent the spread, like masking indoors or not uh, going indoors to restaurants. For example, I looked around a little bit on the internet. New York's Transit Authority is on pace to spend more than $100 million this year on cleaning and disinfecting subway trains. Wow. Do you feel safe? Is that a reasonable spending of $100 million? Could that have been spent on something more useful? Maybe supplying masks, high-performance high N95 masks? Maybe installing better ventilation to prevent aerial uh, transmission? Some of these things are hard to do. It's much easier to spend a lot of money on something that's useless. And politicians get photo ops for that sort of thing. Uh, and it looks like they're doing something. So I think that's why these things happen. And it's so hard to stand up against dumb wastes of money when there's a pandemic going on and people's lives are at stake. What about vaccine passports? Have you, have you had, to, had to have one of those yet? Vaccine passports are a new incursion into the privacy of personal medical decisions. Now, sure, we've had um, the yellow vaccine so-called tracker before, and, you know, people have used these for public school access uh, for, for dangerous, other dangerous diseases. But this is a little different. Now you're being asked for a vaccine passport every time you go to a shoe store or a restaurant or a theater. As an informed populace, we need to be aware of these incursions into privacy and freedom and ensure that they're justifiable, reasonable, and proportionate. And that's very difficult when you're scrambling to make a to appear useful as a politician. But there should be we've we've been in this pandemic long, long enough and there's a lot of scientific work going on and the studies are out there as to what is effective and what's not. And what we need to do is to make sure our politicians are using science-based solutions when they come up with their activities and we need to hold them to proportionate responses and reasonable proportionate responses. And we need to make sure that the expenditures are, are in keeping with the, the results that we expect to get. So the real question is, are these vaccine passports justifiable in the broad range of social environments currently being considered? And with enforcement being subject to the whims of private operators, this opens up more opportunities for um, uneven application, racial profiling, and even discrimination. And we need to be aware of how this is actually practically going to play out. 
know, this isn't just a, a uniform application of a policy by government. This is government saying, everybody out there, do what you want with your business. You have now access to people's private medical decisions. That's a little scary from a privacy standpoint. It's, it's a new incursion. Policies that hold vaccination status as a precondition to full participation in public life run the risk of rendering a voluntary vaccination regime as de facto mandatory. Do you support mandatory vaccines? Can you force people to take these? How much duress is reasonable for people to, to be forced to put something in their body that they don't trust? This is not an easy issue. This is a challenging issue, especially when lives are on the line. And especially when we have a public health system that is being overwhelmed by unvaccinated people coming down with Delta. Now, I'm not saying I disagree with this. I'm, think, I'm saying that we need to be careful and make sure that the steps that are taken are reasonable and proportionate. In effect, people are under severe duress right now uh, due to potential loss of income. People's jobs are being lost because they have decided they're not comfortable with this vaccine. Now, yes, public health benefits in, a, in the event of a dangerous disease like COVID-19 outweigh personal freedoms in a lot of cases. But let's make sure we're doing the right weighing here. What if you're in a job where you don't interact with the public or you work from home? Should you be required to be vaccinated if you don't leave your house? If you decided that you're too scared of the vaccine, you don't believe it's safe, whatever reason, if you decide you want to work from home and not leave your house and have your groceries delivered, should that person lose their job? Now, I'm pro-vaccine. I've got the vaccine myself. I believe that it's safe. There are many folks who have become hesitant to take this vaccine who have not hesitated in the past. People who have all of their, you know, their diphtheria, pertussis, whatever, all of, all of the vaccine schedules from, from years ago on board that are not taking this vaccine. Is this a rational response? A lot of this hesitation is unsurprising because there's a lot of misinformation out there. And people have become untrustworthy of institutions, big institutions. They're untrustworthy of big pharma. And for good reason. People will always say thalidomide was, was the poster example of, of this. But steps have been taken. New testing is required. But this, in this vaccine, it's unsurprising because, you know, Donald Trump rolled this out using Operation Warp Speed. Are you... Do you want to take a vaccine that was rolled out by Donald Trump under a warp speed to get it into market? He's not the most trustworthy type. He, you know, he, he runs Trump University. <laughs> There's a lot of potential for mistrust there. Now, that being said, studies of the vaccines are coming out and long term over the you know, several months since they were issued, hundreds of millions of doses have been put into people. And the studies show that these vaccines are safe and they have no untoward effects. After six months of tracking, scientific studies have done the statistics and there's no uh, additional uh, bad effects after six months. And we shouldn't expect more. Typically, the, the vaccine, um, the so-called long-term effects of vaccines are all in evidence after eight weeks. There, I don't, I have 
no knowledge of any other vaccines that have had long-term effects past that sort of a time scale. So these vaccines are as safe as any others. The professionals who dedicate their lives to saving yours seem to have done a marvelous job on this. The licensing, the, the official licensing process of these vaccines has, has come full circle and now um, the manufacturers have got to the point where they're licensed and they're liable for any sort of uh, medical uh, uh, malfeasance. So I urge you to, to actually go forth and, and get the vaccine if you are hesitant. And if you don't trust my word, go talk to your doctor. Please have that chat. But on the same time, let's make sure we're doing things right as a society and not discriminating and not using duress or more duress than is supportable by the impact this will have on public health. So enough of COVID. That's a, it's, a, it's a difficult and challenging topic and, and people are struggling to do their best. I want to move on to something maybe a little lighter, but it's been bothering me. And this is my rant episode. Security theater at the airport. Airport, airports weren't always like they are now. The situation of waiting in long lines to be effectively strip searched um, by private security guards and, and uh, using x-ray vision to, to show pictures of you to the security guards in the back room. This all came about after the 9-11 uh, terrorist attacks. The taking off your shoes and putting them on the, on the conveyor the water bottles being confiscated, how many unfortunate travelers have been disarmed of their deadly nail clippers, the opening your laptop and turning it on thing. All of this is security theater. It's probably pretty certain that none of this is actually making a difference. You can even pay now to have a detailed background check um, and you know, give a give away your personal secret identification and uh, all of your history, and have people interview your friends and say how trustworthy you are. And now you can skip the line. In fact, the security theater that we do at airports has made long lineups commonplace. People accept this. They say, "Okay, I'm not going to worry about this. I'm just going to plan for two hours of inconvenience and humiliation." in line at the airport. I'm, in fact, a lot of people take a look at the situation and, and, you know, we're not even going to fly for any trip less than a full day's travel. If you could drive it in less than a day, you're going to do that because it's less problem. And you know what? That actually costs lives. Flying is safer than driving. Did you know, studies suggest that post 9-11 security measures reduced airline passenger volume by 6%. If these people traveled by road instead of by plane, this would lead to, in the U.S., 129 additional automobile deaths every three months. That's the same as one fully loaded Boeing 737 equivalent crashing four times a year. So unless the inconvenience of security theater is stopping four Boeing 737s to crash every year, it's actually killing more people than it's saving. Now the huge lines have become soft targets for terrorist attacks. I think there, in Turkey there was a terrorist attack. In Belgium there was a terrorist attack. On the lineups getting into the air, air, 
uh, airport outside of the security perimeters. Um, so they're, they're creating new targets by doing this. Tom Makaitis from Chicago's St. Paul University said, I've seen in this country us waste literally millions of dollars on what I call placebo security, highly visual measures like armed guards strutting up and down in our airports, you know, creating a feeling of well-being and a feeling of security without providing any real added benefit. Bruce Schneier, who, who actually coined the term security theater, says, when people are scared, they need something done that will make them feel safe, even if it doesn't truly make them safer. Politicians naturally want to do something in response to crisis, even, that, if, even if that something doesn't make sense. Schneier continues, Two things that have made flying safer since 9-11 are reinforcing the cockpit, cockpit doors and persuading passengers that they need to fight back. Everything beyond that isn't worth it. Think of that. How about the Patriot Act? Do you remember that was brought in after the 9-11 to allow um, the CIA to waterboard Muslims to protect you? How can you complain about the Patriot Act, you unpatriotic son of a bitch? <laughs> ah, the, the security, is, is, security theater just pains me. So the real question we should be asking ourselves when this happens, and it's difficult to do it when you're f afraid and you're frightened, but what is a rational amount to spend to prevent terrorist attacks on airplanes? What's the cost-benefit ratio? And that's a difficult question. And politicians don't like difficult questions because they aren't, they aren't photo ops and sound bites. So Transportation Safety Association, TSA officials, say aviation security continues to evolve to address ever-changing threats with a layered approach that involves surveillance, intelligence, and technology. The agency has 65,000 employees and spends $8 billion each year in an effort to stay one step ahead of potential foreign and domestic terrorists. Just listen to that. 65,000 employees, $8 billion, technology, slowing down air travel. What are we getting for this? What's the... Result, do you feel that much safer? Do you feel $8 billion safer with all this testing and humiliation at airports? Well, in 2015, TSA sent undercover operatives to try to smuggle weapons onto planes. The $8 billion security system had a 5% success rate in blocking weapons smuggled onto planes. It ain't working. And it's a huge waste of money. And it's horrible. It, it can be argued that making people line up like cattle for ritualistic dehumanization, searches and pat-downs actually costs lives. The environmental cost of flying, however, should be considered. The carbon footprint of flying is horrible. It's huge. So maybe, maybe we are saving lives. Maybe by preventing people from flying. But wait, no, they're still driving. Huge long distances. This isn't the motivation, right? The environmental footprint should not be the motivation. If the environmental footprint is the motivation, we should, we should address that by, build, by developing synth fuels uh, from nuclear power. So let's do the work and be upfront about why we're doing this and make sure that the things we're doing make sense. TSA shouldn't exist. People should be able to walk on airplanes like they walk on buses and trains. Save $8 billion. Use that to promote uh, other methods of preventing terrorism, maybe addressing unrest, maybe addressing inequality, maybe addressing domestic radicalization 
of dis, disadvantaged youth, that could potentially have a positive impact on the situation and make everybody happier. Anyways, thanks for listening to my rant. I really appreciate you, you coming on and listening to this podcast. And stay tuned for a lot of fun coming up with Neil deGrasse Tyson. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.